0: History Nerds United. Hello, nerds. Welcome to History Nerds United podcast. I'm your head nerd, Brendan. Today we have Pulitzer Prize winner Stacy Schiff talking her new book, The Revolutionary Samuel Adams, Don't Call Him Sam. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner. Of course, the book is fantastic, and I had a great conversation with her. I'm a revolutionary nerd before everything else, so I was really into it. It's a great conversation. I think you're going to love it. So I'm going to shut up and let's get to it. Stacy Schiff. And here we are, Pulitzer Prize winner, Stacy Schiff. Stacy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: I am delighted to join you, Brendan.
0: Now, Stacey, I did some very, very in-depth research. Right now, it's October 19th. But when we post this next Wednesday, it's going to be your birthday. So I want to start off by saying happy birthday.
1: You know, I think that you have discovered something that of which my publisher is still unaware, but thank you. That's very kind of you.
0: It took a lot of time on Wikipedia, but I was able to figure it out with some of that higher level math.
1: So now, now do you want to ask about what, how being a Scorpio has helped me to write biography?
0: Oh, please tell me. That was actually my second question.
1: I actually have never actually considered that. So let's, let's put that off till the end of the interview.
0: Now you are the third Pulitzer Prize winner I've talked to. I have to ask this question. Do you ever get tired of hearing Pulitzer Prize winner Stacey Schiff?
1: (laughs) Um, It is not... It has not ever got me a better table in a restaurant, if you see what I mean. Last night, I was actually at a dinner. It was a biography dinner for for a, a wonderful writer. And I met a Pulitzer Prize winner in poetry. And there was this hilarious discussion of whether Pulitzer Prize winner in poetry outranks the Pulitzer Prize winner in biography, because there were several of us who write biography. And we all agreed it does. So, you know, there's a hierarchy, it seems, even among award winners.
0: I, I haven't found that website yet, but I bet you one exists.
1: It's a lovely thing that your publisher puts that winner of the Pulitzer Prize on all of your subsequent books, but that leads to a certain amount of ambiguity because often people think that you, by definition, won it for that book. You see what I mean? There's a certain amount of confusion as to, well, was this the book for which you won the Pulitzer Prize?
0: That is something I ran into, especially if I'm writing something for the website and I want Pulitzer Prize winner. And then I'm like, Well, do I have to put the book they won with first, or can I just do? And it just basically looks like you're the honorable or whatever. We just write whatever, and you just go with it.
1: I like that. I think it should be the honorable from now on.
0: All right, I'm going to send another email about that. I'm going to get right (laughs) on it. So we're talking about the revolutionary Samuel Adams, your newest book. Uh, What made you decide to write the biography of Samuel Adams? You were born in Adams, Massachusetts, correct? Was it a requirement?
1: I don't think it's a requirement. I'm not sure it entirely helped, except that it was a cause of some embarrassment when I realized... Samuel Adams makes a cameo in the book I had written years ago about Benjamin Franklin and his years in France. And I realized um, with some chagrin that I had sort of reeled him onto the stage in that book. And I knew absolutely nothing about him. So that was compounded. My ignorance was compounded by the fact that I was from Adams, Massachusetts, and you'd think I might have known something about him. But the answer to your question was largely, I came to it after having um, spent five years writing about Salem witchcraft and 17th century Salem turned out to be an extremely dark place. And I think I was looking for someone whom I could look to as a as a hero, someone who stood up for his beliefs, someone who had the courage of his convictions, as no one seemed to have for the months of the delusion in Salem. And Adams really answered to that formula. And it helped that when you go back and you look at what the other founders say about him, um, Thomas Jefferson said, if there was a leader to the revolution, then Samuel Adams was that man. All the other founders salute him. And yet, he is completely lost or largely lost to us. So what was it that they knew that we didn't? And somehow in between figuring that out and realizing that he was someone who really largely reroutes history, I kind of fell hook, line and sinker into the project.
0: Which I should point out because you you said some wonderful things about him right now. But what I felt from your writing was that you also realized there's a lot in here that doesn't make him look fantastic, too. I I say that a lot of times authors will absolutely fall in love with their subject to the point that they really kind of lose their perspective on them. But I felt reading this that you took him in as a whole person that was going to have good, bad, and there were going to be things that didn't make him look great at the end of the day.
1: I am so glad that that was your reaction because that was so much my hope. Um, that's one of the things that I find so intriguing about him is that he is simultaneously so high minded and so willing to engage in kind of low ball, sharp elbow tactics. And I didn't think it was necessary. I mean, I don't, I don't love a biography that falls in love a biographer who loves falls in love with his subject. I think isn't doing her job terribly well, but I didn't want him to come off as one note. I wanted all of the complexity of character to come to the fore. And and the descriptions of him are very, they're all across the board. I mean, we, I think, generally write him off as a sort of hothead or a firebrand. Um, John Adams is very clear. John Adams, who knows him better than most people, is very clear about the fact that he's immensely erudite and he's refined and he's very genteel company. And and John says that he had a universally good character. It's it's clear that he's extremely decorous and affable in his behavior, and yet he's also this kind of hardball politics person.
0: I want to take a quick step back because I want to check something with you, who's really immersed yourself in this time period. When I was growing up, it seemed like we absolutely idolized the American Revolution and everything it was, and then it seemed to me that there was a time period where books almost started to go the other way and say, you know the colonials were just insolent, and it was just a tax and things like that, and they should have paid for it. And it seems, especially with your book, to kind of call it down the middle in that respect too, right, was that, sure, there was probably some things, and Samuel Adams was one of them that, you know, changed the perspective a little bit on things to make his own point, but that, hey, they were a little bit insolent, but they also kind of had a point with the way the crown was treating them, right?
1: um absolutely and if you look at if you look at what the crown officials are saying about the most turbulent characters the most unruly characters in in Massachusetts, Massachusetts at this point they're writing them off as just a bunch of disappointed men as a bunch of desperados who are causing all of this trouble because either they didn't want to pay tax or they got shut out of political office or they as is the case of Adams, are penalists themselves. And they, they the British officials, don't tend to see that there's any idealism in the picture whatsoever. And with Adams, you can argue it both ways. I mean, there are these anthems, there are these rousing anthems to liberty on his part. Um, there are these, you know, very cantankerous essays about British overreach. But there is also this sense, and we can talk about it, that it was British overreach that ruined his family. So how much of this is a personal vendetta in a way and how much of this is high-minded ideal?
0: Do me a favor, set that up for us, right? Because we think, uh, leads to everything you read, right? Oh, it was a bunch of rich white guys in Boston that started problems. It, sort of, sort of not with Samuel Adams. Can you tell me a little bit about his upbringing and what kind of brought him to this point where he became a focal point of the revolution?
1: I think our common misunderstanding with the Adams cousins is that Samuel is somehow the firebrand and John is the the sort of more refined Bostonian. And in fact, John is kind of the country cousin who's younger and who is recruited by Samuel, who is older, who is possessed of two Harvard degrees, who comes from actually a very wealthy family. Um, The family had a very beautiful estate overlooking um, the harbor with its own wharf and an observatory on the house. And at one point, Samuel Adams' father becomes the director of what's called the land bank which was a bank established by a group of massachusett's men to inject new currency to inject currency into the um into the economy because there was such a grievous shortage of currency and that currency is backed by land holdings it's a venture that for for various reasons some of them just because the political elite in, in massachusett's didn't like the idea is shut down by the british in a very peremptory way and in shutting down the land bank, Samuel Adams' Great Britain essentially ruins Samuel Adams's family. His father is so deeply invested in this project that he is afterwards bankrupted. And Adams, Samuel Adams until Sr., um, will spend the rest of his days trying to contend with this debt. Samuel Adams, our, our Samuel Adams, will be years in and out of um, court attempting to come to terms with this debt. But essentially it leaves him downwardly mobile without really a business to, with which to attend and therefore you might say with more time for politics and with something of a grudge something with a something of a chip on his shoulder although we don't have anything on paper as to that being his motivation
0: and you just touched on that and you talk about it in the book he was not prolific writing like he he was not his cousin john who's writing 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 we have all sorts of things on john adams but For Samuel Adams, he was kind of a face-to-face guy, right?
1: He's very much a face-to-face guy. He's clearly very charismatic and very popular in the streets of Boston. He seems to know pretty much everyone. And there's clearly a great deal of kind of in and out the houses going on with Samuel Adams. He is, however, a very, I think most most at ease on the page and a very prolific writer, especially when prolific writing was called for. So for example, in the late 1760s, when when Boston is occupied by British troops, he's writing constantly. In the wake of the Boston massacre, he's writing constantly. Very often there'll be two pieces in the same paper under different pseudonyms, both of them written by Samuel Adams. So at times he really goes on these tears. Um, It's sometimes hard to identify his work because often works were done together with someone else or they are anonymous. And so there's this, and of course so much of this is pseudonymous, so we're having to find him behind what seemed to be at least 30 pseudonyms.
0: He seemed to like being somehow in the in the front and in the back at the same time, right that he is pushing these things forward but he almost kind of wants it to seem like it's somebody else's idea or it's the greater group that wants something done, right?
1: Exactly. I don't think you could put it better. He's very recessive. First of all, there's not he's a very modest man. And in distinction to John Adams, there is no Sense of vanity whatsoever, and the the few times that he says something that it could even be construed as vain, he practically walks it back. I mean, at one point he's in he's in Congress and he writes his in the at the Continental Congress and he writes his wife that he's long understood that we have to sacrifice the sweeter things in life for our for our country, but then he realizes that sounds kind of pompous and he sort of walks it back as well. So yes, doesn't have that vanity and is very intent on building a team and seems to intuitively understand. That in order to build a team you need to blend in with the team not to stand out from the team this is something that sets him at odds with with others of his colleagues but he tends always to push someone else toward the spotlight and, and you have a sense of that from it's a wonderful description of john adams when Samuel Adams and a friend call on John to try to get, to convince him to give a Boston Massacre oration, which was an oration commemorating the Boston Massacre, and you can just feel, you can just feel Samuel trying to twist John's arm, and John, John trying to twist out of it, but you get a sense of. Samuel is this person who's very eager to have someone else step onto the stage, but he will stage manage the thing for everyone so long as they will let him.
0: I have to feel like it was a very awkward dinner after the Boston Massacre when John Adams decides to be the lawyer for the Redcoats. I think a lot of people forget this. Samuel Adams, he's forefront. He is getting everyone riled up. And then his cousin becomes a lawyer for the defense. That's got to be an awkward dinner conversation, right?
1: I think those sort of six months, because it's practically six months, maybe not six months, maybe it's five months, between the massacre in March and the trials in October, I think it must have been very awkward all around. Initially... Samuel will do everything in his power to the point of rudeness, I might add, to get the cases tried immediately while tempers are still flaring, while the people are still very inflamed by what's happened. He wants this to be adjudicated right away. Thomas Hutchinson and the acting governor is doing everything in his power to delay the trials. And, And Hutchinson prevails, in fact, so that's why the trials don't take place until the fall. And somewhere along the line there, clearly with Samuel's, presumably with Samuel's okay, John takes the case. And scholars have always assumed that that was because John Adams would keep the things that were secret would remain secret if John handled the case. And it was very important that justice be served and that Boston be seen as rule abiding and law abiding and justice be upheld. Adams Samuel Adams does not attend Captain Preston's trial, the first trial. He does go to the the second trial. We don't know why neither he nor any other Patriot leader is in the courtroom for that first trial. We have no no indication of why. But afterward, after everyone is exonerated except for two of the soldiers, um, and so justice has theoretically been served, Samuel does something completely contradictory, which is to begin to relitigate the entire case in the press. So over the next months, largely on the front page of the Boston Gazette, he will publish a series of articles that essentially undermine completely the conclusions to which the court and the jury have come. And that's very typical of him.
0: (laughs) Where is the inflection point for Samuel Adams where every founding father kind of has a point where at first it's like, we just want something changed. We just want England to treat us a certain way. And then there's a point where they become a revolutionary. Was that a slow process for Samuel? Or is there something that seemed to click in his head where he knows it's too far gone to be? Saved.
1: You know, I have so many questions for this man, which remain unanswered for me. That and the Boston Tea Party are perhaps at the top of the list. Almost every other founder, whether accurately or not, will say this was the Rubicon, or here is where we crossed the Rubicon. And many people have drawn the, traditionally drawn the Rubicon for Samuel Adams in 1768 when troops disembark in Boston. Once Boston becomes an occupied town, and as I said, he takes very much the press at that moment he's realized that there is no going backward. Independence is in the cards. There is, however, nothing on paper to support that view. We really have nothing of his that's from that moment that changes in any substantive way. So it's very hard to see where he goes from thinking, we need to have these wrongs righted, we need to have these acts repealed, to we need to be a sovereign nation. He does say that independence should have been declared the morning after Lexington and Concord. I mean, that's the one point where he very clearly says, why did we have to wait till July of 1776?
0: And tell me if I'm misrepresenting where you were going with, it almost seems like you felt he was a revolutionary way before he actually said anything out loud, like it was slowly building and he was taking the temperature of everybody to see when he can finally say, here's where we are now, this is what we need to do, that maybe he thought it a long time before it, but he was keeping his own counsel
1: instinctively, I think there's a lot to that. He, I mean, as I think I I say in the book, it seems as if he's sort of steering in the direction of Great Britain's skid and he just keeps going. He seems to intuit that that is where the future lies, but he also realizes that he's less patient than is most of the rest of the colony. And he's waiting until the popular will congeals more around those ideas.
0: As an American, this is probably going to be really weird to say. But there were multiple parts of this book where I start feeling bad for Crown officials because they seem overmatched quite often. And they were in some pretty terrible circumstances at the same time. Like, you hit this hard. It was scary to be on the side of the Crown at certain points in Boston and the surrounding areas, right?
1: If you um, felt tenderness for the Crown officials, I feel like I did my job. I'm so happy to hear you say that. Yes, on every level. And, you know, there's such, to me anyway, there's such a parallel with today. The Crown officials, especially Thomas Hutchinson, who's really the sort of anti-hero of the book and the bane of Samuel Adams's existence, they they don't mean ill. They're doing their jobs. Hutchinson doesn't approve of the Stamp Act. He doesn't approve of the Sugar Act. He thinks they should be repealed. Unfortunately, he holds too many political offices to say as much, so he can't really be as forthright about, about his disfavor as he would like to be. He's only trying to do his job. His job, unfortunately, means enacting the laws of the crown. He is trying so hard to sort of square the circle and he just can't. And meanwhile, this upstart is sort of racing circles around him, kind of confronting him on every possible issue. And all Hutchinson is trying to do is the decent and right thing. And yes, you find him scratching his head. You know, it's, he's, several months removed from from his orders, right? It's taking months for anything to come across the ocean. Really no one is Lon- in London is paying sufficient attention to what's going on. He's sending sort of panicked letter after panicked letter back and he's not really necessarily getting traction. He doesn't realize his world has irrevocably changed. And I think that's where the parallel with today strikes me so much is that you have this elite in Boston who are just waiting till this all returns to normal. And they consistently over the years preceding uh, the declaration, write this down to a delusion. It's delusion. It's not revolution to them. They just think this is, they keep making references to the Salem witch trials. This is just going to calm itself in a few short minutes, and they wait for the world to assume it's, its previous shape, which it isn't going to do.
0: And to me, Hutchinson's big downfall that Adams always played perfectly is he never understood how things looked. He kept focusing on I'm allowed to have however many offices he had, and I'm allowed to do this. And Adams always realized that it's more important what it looks like to everybody as opposed to what is, you know, quote unquote, allowed by the crown.
1: And, you know, there Adams is quite brilliant because Massachusetts offices always descended from father to son. This was not unusual. It was unusual for anyone to hold as many offices as did Thomas Hutchinson. But Thomas Hutchinson was an incredibly gifted administrator. He was a really able-bodied man who for example, gets appointed chief justice, doesn't know anything about the law and studies up on the law to become a very able-bodied chief justice. But Adams isn't going to let anyone forget how privileged and how disconnected Thomas Hutchinson is. So yes, it's this kind of constant drip of um, invective against Hutchinson. And you know, it's funny you can you hear it. Dr. Warren is, is just as antagonistic toward Hutchinson. John Adams, I think, is the first of the, of the three of them to vent to voice suspicions of Thomas Hutchinson. There's clearly a great deal of anger at Hutchinson. Largely, I'm assuming born of envy initially. but there's a real disfavor there for this what has become this tight knot of a very privileged men who could seem to control everything
0: and with samuel adams losing money and things like that and not necessarily having the privilege all the way through that somebody like hutchinson do you think that put them on a collision course or do you think anyone who ended up in hutchinson's position was going to feel the wrath of adams
1: i think anyone in hutchinson's position who was not going to bend in any way to i guess what adams would have called the will of the people was going to find himself in that position and it it only gets worse in other words once hutchinson has made one concession the next time he feels he can't concede at all. So he becomes more and more rigid. So, for example, after the Boston massacre, when Adams famously confronts him about removing troops, evacuating troops from Boston, and he finally, after two attempts at it, forces Hutchinson into making that concession, Hutchinson's berating himself. He can't believe he's given in to this. He feels he hasn't done his job properly. And I'm sure that must have weighed on his mind to some extent, in 1773, when the question is, "Will you let this tea land, or are you going to, um, or are you are you going to give us a permit to re- to return this tea to Great Britain, or are you going to allow this tea to land?" I'm sure Hutchinson must have been thinking, "I'm not going to do this again. I've already given in once before." I mean, I'm sure there's a sense there of, "I've been taken advantage of."
0: And this is kind of around the time where I'm reading and I'm saying, uh, "Samuel, you're my, you're my hero here." But I think you mentioned it. the sharp elbows really start to come out. This is where we're really seeing him mastermind a lot of different things, sometimes at the forefront, sometimes in the background. But this is where you start to see, you just got to call it hypocrisy. He'll say one thing and then he will turn around and say the opposite thing, depending on just what he wants to get done, right?
1: Expediency is the word we're both looking for, right? I mean, I think, yes, absolutely. I think you see that. That sort of devious behavior best right after the troops arrive in Boston in 1768, where he and any number of friends, and we don't know how many are putting together these pieces, which we know is the the Journal of Occurrences, all these news items about the brutality of the soldiers who are living in Boston at this point and how they are treating the men, women, and children of Boston. And if you read these pieces, you get the sense that every man, woman, and child in Boston was being aggressed upon by these troops who were meant to be there just to restore order. Adams and his friends write these little sort of squibs up and they see to it that they are dispatched from Boston to New York and from New York to Philadelphia. And only after they have made that trip, then printed in Boston, by which time nobody's really sure if the incident that's described ever happened or had never happened. None of these incidents shows up in any of the legal papers. I mean, they do seem to be invented largely from whole cloth. I'm sure there were collision, plenty of collisions between the soldiers and the populace, but nothing of the intensity and the frequency with which Adams and his friends paint it. So, you know, you do have a certain, and that's sheer mis- information, and he makes the most of this. And and moreover, he unites the colonies by making sure that that information is disseminated from Boston.
0: And after the colonies unite, and we're we're on that march with the Revolutionary War, that's when he starts to fade from history for the most part. What do you think, and it's almost kind of the point of the book, right, is why does he fade? Is he one of those people that he found that one thing that meant something to him, and he did it magnificently? But then once that was gone, he didn't quite know what the next step was?
1: I think it's a number of things. And to me, it's it's one of the most intriguing parts of the life. You know, it has this inconsequential first act of 40-some years where he amounts to nothing. And then it has this rousing 12-year, 11-year, you know, extraordinary, flaming couple of years. And then again, you have a very unsatisfying third act. He's better, I think we can agree, at breaking things down and building them up. He's not a believer in institutions. And I think especially once the revolution is over, you don't really want the revolutionary on the stage. You want to clear the revolutionaries away so you can build a new nation. He does not have any fondness for federalism. So he's out of sync with his peers in terms of um Politically, he's out of sync with his peers. He's still very much stuck on old world simplicity where everyone else has moved on to new world luxury. He's still looking back to a very pure and simple time. He does himself no favors in the sense that he doesn't collect his papers. So at one point, John Adams writes to him and says, uh, years after the revolution, and says to him, you know, those writings of those pre-revolutionary years are essential. They're of critical interest to everyone. You must collect them and publish them. People around the world will be interested. And Adams makes no effort whatsoever to do so. So he leaves the history to other people. In fact, one of the most poignant parts of the book to me is when he's reading himself the accounts of the revolutionary years as others have written them. And it's not at all the way he's, it's not at all the way it happened. So he's reading the history in his own lifetime. And he generally felt that he... He felt he didn't answer to his peers; he felt he answered only to one judge and one judge alone, and so didn't have any time really for kind of buttressing his own reputation. I mean, you can see John Adams from practically from his adolescent days wondering about greatness and how he'll achieve greatness and how he'll be remembered. Samuel Adams has no vanity and has no none of those thoughts
0: and Do you think the fact that John had such longevity kind of dimmed his star from the same family that there was? Probably comparisons. And John, I mean, from beginning to end, John Adams is a name that was always kind of doing something. Whereas, like you said, Samuel just had, he burned hot for a little bit and then went into the background. Do you think that association with John might have dimmed his star a little bit too?
1: I think in a funny way, there are too many Adamses, you know, as as John Adams called them, the brace of Adamses. I think we confuse them. And so he kind of maybe got obscured by the, he's the lesser Adams, um, which is very funny because when John Adams gets to France to join Ben Franklin to form a treaty of alliance, Everyone thinks he's Samuel because, by the in the 18th century, Samuel was the famous Adams, and he has to say, "No, no, no, I'm not the Mister Adams you think I am." And, and the French think he's just being humble, and they say, "But of course you are." They don't. They don't even believe him. They they completely change places in terms of um, the primacy. So yes, I do think he's somewhat blotted out by or eclipsed by the fact that John is there. And and, and in all fairness, among founding fathers. I really don't think anyone writes a sharper sentence or more vivid sentence than John Adams. So by definition, I think he takes the prize because he had so much to say on every subject. He's so immensely quotable. And there's such an extraordinary wealth of letters. And we don't have that for Samuel.
0: And the Adams family were the Kennedys before the Kennedys came along, right? Like, this is the fa- – I mean, we're not even – we haven't even mentioned John Quincy Adams, right, who's related to him as well. I mean, it's – they got a lot of star power in that family. Oh, Abigail Adams had to marry into it, but even still.
1: She wrote some pretty really good letters too. You know, it's funny. I just did a piece about political dynasties because so much of what got under the skin in some of these cases in the 1760s was was the very fact that there was this tight grip on power by very few families. So the fact that we should then end up with John Quincy Adams as president, you know, it's it's almost as if nothing has changed a generation later. But yes, it it is for those years, a very distinguished family. I would say that John and Samuel are opposites to some extent in the sense that John really is a statesman and has a great, does a great deal of thinking about political architecture, whereas Samuel is really much more interested in in the people and the people asserting themselves and the people making themselves heard and has very little interest in institutions.
0: And this may be looking at it too simplistically. It also seems like Samuel got really tired. He was in the middle of everything. I mean, when you talk about Boston in this book, you feel the tension, the fact that on any given day, the temper may flare one way or the other. And maybe that's just me reading it and saying, maybe I'm just tired, because that sounds pretty tense. But it also seems like he was there day to day, and maybe he just didn't have the energy to keep pushing like somebody like John did.
1: I think after 12 years, you could afford to be exhausted by by efforts as gargantuan as this. I think the one thing, among the things we don't know that would be interesting to know, he had a tremor. He had some kind of tremor that was very visible in his hand and his head. And it comes; it affects him fairly early in life, and it's exacerbated by stress, and it gets much worse with age, as is the case with tremors. And he talks in the 1780s about how it's getting harder and harder for him to write, for him to hold his hands steady. And then at a certain point, he can't hold his hands steady, and other people take over the secretarial duties for him. But I would wonder how much of this, is there a physical frailty that went along with that? was that a debilitating thing in in the first place? And we have almost nothing. We know it was an inherited thing. We know other members of the family had had it. um, But he lives a tremendously long time, not always able to hold a pen in his hands. I don't know what that says about the rest of his physical condition.
0: I'd like to ask some really hard-hitting questions now. Do you think he'd be fun to have dinner with? Like, He's very intelligent, but he also seems like he might be a lot. (laughs)
1: You know, I, I would think that based on something like the propaganda pieces, where he's just so out there and, you know, so provocative. But the descriptions from other people really paint him as being, as I said, very decorous, very charming. He has a, clearly has a great number of friends. John is very clear about how refined his manners are. He's very, um, he's very courtly. He's very given to you know telling an aphoristic story. He entertained beautifully. John Adams makes a point of telling us that he entertained, despite the fact that he had no money, in sparkling style. So those things seem to belie um, some of the more assertive tactics that he that he shows elsewhere. I mean, there's that wonderful moment where he's heading off to the Continental Congress, and he's so ill dressed that clearly that doesn't seem to be something that most people in Boston can abide—the idea that they might be represented by someone as shabby as Samuel Adams. And to his door come in succession, a tailor and a hatmaker and a shoemaker, and each of them takes Adams's measure and then produces a trunk of beautifully, beautifully wrought clothes for him to take to Philadelphia with him. And this was just done by some anonymous donor. It may have been John Hancock, but clearly he, he somehow elicited those kinds of that kind of loyalty and those kinds of tributes from people.
0: How far we've come as Americans. His friends had to buy him clothes, and yet I spend most days in sweatpants, and I'm perfectly fine with it.
1: <laughs> I, think, I think he dressed more, more like we do today. Yeah, there are a lot of descriptions, of, or a couple of descriptions of his shabby clothes, including one from him.
0: Do you think your most important contribution of this book is to make it very clear that he was never called Sam Adams while he was alive? He was always Samuel.
1: I dearly hope that won't be the only contribution, (laughs) but it would be nice to be able to put the other two syllables back on the record. I I like to think that the heroism here would be be something people could focus on. I mean, the the standing up to power is a really pretty impressive feat. There are just so many aspects of this. I think we all understood the revolution to have happened in this very linear fashion. The fact that it actually proceeds by fits and starts where there are moments where it's the resistance effort is utterly stalled, I think is lost on many of us. I was, you know, struck, and this is why the book starts where it does, by the fact that most of us know that Paul Revere got on his horse late one night in mid-April, but we don't really think about where he was going. I mean, we don't know that he's actually sent to go see Samuel Adams and John Hancock And I think just the fact that there's someone behind the scenes here whose peers considered him to be so critical, but who could go missing is really interesting.
0: I do have to ask this question. Did you drink any Sam Adams beer while writing this?
1: I'm so boring, Brandon. I don't drink. So that did not happen.
0: I mean, it's fine beer, but you're not missing anything. You're fine.
1: Okay. Phew. I have a I do have a lot of Samuel Adams figurines on my shelf, which various friends have sent me, some of them hand painted. So I I do have a little, you know, I have a little collection here, but they're not of beer bottles.
0: I think that's a step up, quite frankly. And again, I I love a beer, but I think that's that's cooler, probably. So last question, I always ask this and especially for the American Revolution. If you're a kid growing up in the United States, the revolution gets shoved down your throat every year in history class. They beat it into you. And I think it leads to a lot of people saying, history is boring. I don't want to read history. I already learned all of this in school. If one of those people was in front of you and said, history is boring, why should I read your book? What would you say to that person?
1: Wow. You know, I guess there are times I thought history was boring too. So I I think to some extent, that's the joy of biography in a way. I think once you once you start to read through the sensibility of another person who was actually there, you see history History comes alive in a way it doesn't otherwise. There's a wonderful line in Carlisle about how biography are the candles by which history is illuminated. So I think to some extent, I would say reading David McCullough and John Adams, reading a book which is about a single individual can open doors to the history. But I also just think Putting the incidental, the unresolved back into the history, making it feel as if you don't have a preordained end, you don't know where this is going, makes it a lot more exciting.
0: This was definitely exciting for me, Stacey. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And everybody needs to go out and buy this book.
1: Thank you, Brendan. That was adorable. Thank you.
0: And that's it for this episode, Stacy. Thank you so much for coming on here. The revolutionary Samuel Adams. Buy it, nerds. You're going to love it. In the meantime, hit us up. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Listen to all the podcast episodes. Leave us some reviews. Five star, please. And have a happy Halloween, everybody. Be safe out there. Till next time. Stay cool, nerds.